0: As I get started, I need to put my leash on so I can't get too far away from the podium. Well, since I'm a business teacher, I thought I'd surprise you this morning and talk about money. That's pretty predictable, right? Three great personal resources. Time, energy, and material wealth, and much of that material wealth that we describe as money. I really want to focus in on that in our chapel this morning. I want to encourage you to come back on Friday as well. We're going to have a, chat, uh, a panel of business professors. And what we're trying to do is feed those evening sessions in dorm rooms where you get together for those bull sessions and hammer out your ideas. Many of my ideas in college were hammered out in the classroom. Most of them were really sharpened and honed in the dorm rooms about 1 AM or 2 AM. And we're hoping that some good dorm room discussions flow out of the time that we spend with you we're an incredibly affluent group of people here in the United States. We live in the wealthiest nation on the face of this planet. If California alone were rated as a nation, we would be the sixth leading nation in the world in terms of gross national product. The 60 mile radius around Los Angeles would be the 11th leading nation in the world in terms of affluence. We are caught up in the midst of incredible, incredible wealth. Those who live in poverty in the United States have a higher standard of living than many people who are middle class, quote unquote, in other countries of the world. We're privileged with this great wealth, this material wealth. And you say, well, I'm not experiencing that. I had to bum five bucks off my roommate to fill my tank with gas this last weekend, or I had to go through all my old clothes to come up with a quarter just to do my laundry. Listen, you are a wealthy group of individuals. I often have uh, wonderful times walking through the student uh, parking lot and looking at the automobiles, saying, Boy, I wish I could have a car like that. (laughs) Wealth is really relative as we think about ourselves as, as compared with other countries, listen to this excerpt from Newsweek. Excuse me, U.S. News and World Report. This is last week. People who starve to death each year in the world, 11 million people starve to death every year. Overweight U.S. adults, 34 million. 34 million. The money Americans spend to eat out in 1990, $236 billion. The money we sent overseas for food in 1990, $1.6 billion. People who are continually hungry, Ethiopia, 20%, Sudan, 20%, Mozambique, 30 to 40%, Americans currently on diets, 19%. We're wealthy. We're wealthy. And I don't read these off to you to put you on some kind of a guilt trip or to make you want to package your leftovers today at lunch to send them over there. I'm trying to show you how incredibly wealthy we are as a nation. One of the most fascinating things happened in 1989. The Berlin Wall crumbled. And the Berlin Wall crumbled not because of some great ideal out there that people were embracing the Berlin Wall fell because of economics. Two economic factors caused it. One is the incredible wealth that America possesses kept churning out more and more defense spending and the communist country couldn't keep up with it. Secondly, American tourists were going into these countries and people were visiting European and American, North American countries And they saw the incredible wealth that was amassed in this part of the world. And quite frankly, they want their piece of the pie. They are tired of living in the experiment of communism that has been a dismal economic failure for the last 50 years. They want wealth. It was in the 80s, the big joke was that the definition of a Russian string quartet was a Russian orchestra on its last date in the United States. The defections were rampant when people would see this. Harry Truman once said, if you want to see the Iron Curtain crumble, just drop Sears catalogs behind the line. And they'll begin to see the wealth that the rest of the world has. It's an economic phenomena. Capitalism works. Pragmatically, it works. And the reason it works, I'm sad to say, is because it's built on a presupposition, the depravity of man. And that is every man, as Adam Smith said, operates in his own self-interest. And since everyone does that, they build an economy based on that presupposition that works. It becomes a wealthy economy. I talk about this with my economics students, in some regards communism is more noble because it assumes that instead of operating in my own self-interest, I will work for the self-interest of other people, but it doesn't work that way. When we tour communist countries, we see that what belongs to everybody belongs to nobody. And we find buildings and buses, transportation lines, things in disrepair things that are built yesterday that are supposed to be brand new look like they're 40 years old the day they're built. Because it just doesn't work. And I often say that anyone that believes in the inherent goodness of this universe never raised a kid or a garden. I've had both. We have four children and we've raised gardens. And if you leave a child alone, it doesn't become inherently better. It becomes more and more self-centered. And more and more difficult to live with. If you leave a garden alone, good things don't grow out there. Weeds crop up. The work, uh, the work that we're involved with, is the work of reversing the effects of the fall. And that work, uh, and and that that effect is as much an effect in the economic system as in any other system that we live in. And that's the reason that capitalism works so well. But with all this affluence that we have because we're in a system that has brought this affluence and we're in a nation that's rich in natural resources, what can we say to the young person, what can I say to the young person that's in college today as you think about a a world of work later on and, and the fact that you're going to be interacting with this wealth and some of you will be amassing wealth in the days ahead and I want to leave you with four warnings if I can this morning and if you have a piece of paper and a pencil go ahead and uh, maybe jot these down along with some verses and I hope that you think about them just a little bit warning number one is this beware of religious folklore about money beware of what Larry Burkett calls religious folklore about money Here's one of the notions that you'll hear. Money is the root of all evil. Well, there's a problem with that. Not only is it untrue, it's misquoting the scripture, the passage that it's found in. 1 Corinthians 6.10 says the love of money is the root of evils or literally all sorts of evils as as, uh, defined in the New American Standard Bible. One of the tapes that we show business students, uh, an individual comes on the tape and the first thing that he says is, business is a game and money is the way you keep score. That's the love of money. And Ecclesiastes 5.10 says that he who loves money will never be satisfied with money. You ask a wealthy person, do you have enough? And no one ever has enough. It's a dog chasing its tail. There will never be enough money to satisfy the person that wants money. But money is not the root of all evil. Listen, money is just a tool. It's just a tool. Anything can be uh, elevated to the level of idolatry when it replaces our allegiance to God and becomes the focus of our lives rather than God being the focus of our lives. And for many, money has been placed in that position, but God never intended it to be that way. It's just a tool. It's something that we use to accomplish something. Money is not an end in itself. It's simply a means to an end. It's the means to the end that I have of providing for my family. It's the means to the end that I have of of helping support God's work. It's the means that I have of laying up for the future. It's just a tool and that's all it is. It is not inherently good or evil. It is amoral. It is the same as a knife. If I were to have a knife here before me, we could use the knife in a number of ways. We could carve a a piece of roast with the knife or we could butter a slice of bread with the knife or we could take the knife out and we could actually stab someone and do them bodily harm with the knife. But the knife itself does not possess any inherent morality. It's just in the way that it's used. And it's just in the attitude toward that, uh, toward that thing, whatever it might be. And money is the same way. It's just a tool. The second piece of folklore is that poverty is spiritual. Poverty is spiritual. And this is quite popular among people that are poor. Poverty proves nothing. Get that? Poverty in and of itself proves Nothing. A person can be in poverty because they're being tested. Look at Job in the Old Testament. His poverty was sort of, in a way, kind of a badge, wasn't it? That he was in a position where Satan would actually want to see him tested and God allowed that test to occur. And we couldn't go to Job and say, your poverty is spiritual and your wealth is unspiritual because he was spiritual in both conditions, wasn't he? He was obedient to God as a wealthy individual. He was obedient to God in his poverty. And poverty shows us that that wealth nor poverty prove anything in and of themselves. People can be in poverty because of ignorance. People can be in poverty because of sin. People can be in poverty because they're disadvantaged. They're inherently disadvantaged in some way. And it doesn't mean that they are in poverty because they're sinful. It doesn't mean that uh, wealth is uh, an evidence of God's blessing. It doesn't mean that poverty is spiritual. When we look at wealth or poverty, we know nothing. Inherently, we know nothing. The Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Another piece of folklore is that problems are the evidence of sin. If somebody's having problems, they're having sin. And the book of Job clears that up for us. That's the first thing his friends ask him was, uh, is there sin in your life for you to be having this kind of problem? That's a logical question because of what we know about sowing and reaping, isn't it? In other words, if we sow in sin, we're going to reap some things that we don't like. But the fact of the matter is, is we can be having problems even if we are not in sin. Job wasn't in sin, and he had problems. What about the disciples in Matthew chapter 14? When they found themselves in the midst of the storm, who was the one that told them to get in the boat and row out into the sea? It was Christ. They were in the middle of problems because of obedience, not disobedience. And problems sometimes come into our lives because God is allowing us to be tested. And financial problems can be that same way. Just because you have financial difficulty does not mean that you're in sin. Here's another piece of folklore. Start into the controversy here. Wealthy people usually make good church leaders. Wealthy people usually make good church leaders. There is no link between spiritual qualifications and wealth. A lot of times churches will turn to people who have been successful in the world of business and they'll see some leadership that's been applied to the business world and they'll say, let's make that individual a leader in our church. But as I look at the Bible in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I see no qualification that relates to wealth. None whatsoever. I do see qualifications that relate to having a good reputation in the community, being above reproach, and it could be that someone Who has amassed some wealth would be a terrific church leader. They've, they've got the qualifications expressed in 1st Timothy 3, but I can guarantee you that if you place someone in spiritual leadership because they have shown some kind of acumen in terms of the business world, you may be asking for problems. Because the fact of the matter is, is that the church is not a business. The church should operate according to good principles of business in terms of keeping a good set of books and being responsible and paying its bills and operating in an orderly way. But the church is more of an organism than an organization. And many times the people who are brought in who are quote unquote good in business make decisions that more reflect the thinking of the world than the thinking of, of what the church ought to be. They deal many times in the tough ways of the business world rather than showing the kindness and tenderness that are to characterize the body of Christ. Here's the last piece of religious folklore, is that God owes you wealth if you're obedient. God owes you wealth if you're obedient. And if you watch a certain channel on TV, you'll see a high number of people come on with some pretty incredible hairdos And they'll say that if you are obedient, God will bless you materially. And if you're obedient, you'll have good health. They're the health and wealth people, right? And somehow you can get God over a barrel financially, where if you do stack up enough good works and enough good deeds, you pray enough, go to church enough, are devout enough as a Christian, eventually God will make you a wealthy person for having done that. And there is no such promise in Scripture. The Bible does say if you're a doer of the Word and not here only, you'll be blessed in your deeds. But listen, there are a number of ways that blessing occurs. I would consider having the fruit of the Spirit in my life a great blessing. When I counsel a number of people who are wealthy and who are unhappy, recently talked with an individual who has incredible wealth and lives in the wealthiest part of this of this valley who for a year's time off and on kept trying to take their own life. You know, I'd like to have the fruit of the Spirit. I'd like to have something like peace. I'd like to have something like joy. I'd like to have something like long suffering, patience, goodness. Gentleness, meekness, kindness. I don't want to chase this pot of the gold at the end of the rainbow that's called wealth and say that's the way God blesses. God blesses in a number of ways, and many of the ways He blesses are far beyond financial measure, far beyond what we would call wealth. And the blessing of God is there for those who are obedient, but it is not necessarily a financial blessing. One of the neat things that many of you will experience this summer when you go out on the mission trips that Mark's talking about is you're going to meet an incredible number of people who are materially destitute who have an incredible amount of joy in their lives. That's blessing. Warning number two. Warning number two. Warning number one is beware of religious folklore about money. Warning number two is beware of thinking your money belongs to you. Beware of thinking that your money belongs to you. Hey, I earned it. I worked hard for this money. You wouldn't believe what I had to do up in the back recesses of the lunchroom in order to get this. $15 that I have. I did things no one else on campus would do. I earned it. I deserve it. I owe it to myself. All of those things reflect an attitude that says this money belongs to me. Acts 17.24 says that the source of all life and all things is God. Look at Deuteronomy 8.18. I have a lot to say, so I'm not taking a lot of time to have you look at verses. I'm quoting uh, more of them. But Deuteronomy 8.18. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth. The power that you have to accumulate wealth comes from God. Whether it's mental power, the ability to see how a dollar can be made. It's physical power, the the energy to go out and work for that. Or the time, the very days that you have to accumulate it. All those things come from the hand of God. He is the source of that. Psalm 24.1 says, "...the earth is the Lord and all it contains." And one of the most ironic passages in Scripture is the story of the rich man in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21, who accumulated a lot of wealth and just kind of kicked back at that point and said, look at all the neat things I've accumulated. My barns are full. I'm going to have to build more barns because I am one wealthy dude. And then God said, you fool, tonight your life will be required of you. One of the saddest things to see in life is to see that people whose entire focus is on money, on wealth. And to see that focus lived and breathed out, see them work seven days a week, 12 hours a day to accumulate it, see all other things pushed to the side as they single-mindedly focus in on wealth. And to achieve a certain amount of success... And then to see their life take a sudden turn. A sudden turn that shows them that they climbed the ladder, but the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. A sudden turn. One of the men uh, within a short walking distance of this campus. Very successful. Very successful businessman accumulated a great deal of wealth. And if I named the name of the company, most of you would know it instantly because you drive by it all the time. And he was feeling kind of bad. And so he decided to go over to the doctor. And the doctor said, well, let's kind of explore what's going on here. And they opened him up, immediately closed him back up, and said, you've just got a few days to live. His priorities suddenly changed in the midst of all that. The things that seemed important to him were no longer important to him. And one of my friends was able to have a ministry with him and talk with him about the Lord and share with him what's really important in this life. You see, because life takes sudden changes and the things that seemed important are no longer important. You say, hey, you can't take it with you. Larry Burkett tells this story about the, the guy who was the accountant for, for Rockefeller. And Rockefeller died. And his accountant was interviewed. And they said, How much did Rockefeller leave? How much did he leave behind? We want to know. The newspapers asked this question to his accountant. His accountant turned to him and said, Hey, the answer to that's simple. He left it all. He left it all. It's a temporal kind of a thing. And because everything comes from God, whether it's our money, our health, our environment, our relationships, everything comes from God. We're simply stewards of that resource. What if you've worked hard for several years Put your money, let's say, into certificates of deposit at the bank, over at uh, any bank here in the local area. And you decided at, uh, at a certain amount of time, in a certain amount of time, that you wanted to get that money back. And so you walk into the bank and you say, "I want to take my money out." You present the certificates and show that uh, they're now due. You don't have to take a penalty on them. You can get your money back. And the banker, uh, the teller, looks at it and, and says, oh, well, there's kind of a problem here. And she calls the, the banker over. And the banker said, well, you know, I'd like to get you, give you your money back, but uh, I've grown to like your money. And I'm really having fun with your money. You know, I've, the, the kids are really enjoying their bikes. And we, we kind of wanted to thank you for that. And, uh, and also, we wanted to thank you for the new ski boat and the ski that goes with it. And that condo in Aspen, we're just having a ball. That's quality family time for us to be able to go there and, and stay in that condo. And we, we're really enjoying the use of your money. We, we really love your money. And, uh, you know, we sort of know that it's your money, but, uh, but, but we're using it, okay? And you say What? Call 911. This sucker is going to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You're out of here because you just stole my money. It was a high-tech, white-collar robbery that occurred, but you stole it nonetheless. And maybe the kind of jail he goes to will help him with his golf game and tennis game. I don't know, but he'll go to jail. You see, that's the way we treat God, isn't it? Any money that we have is His money. We have to give account for the use of that money. It is not ours. Charles Wesley said that when you stand before the Lord, you ought to be able to give an account for how you use that money. And every time you make an expenditure, that expenditure should be offered up as a sacrifice to God. Kind of makes me think about what I'm spending it on. Can it be offered as a sacrifice to God? Here's warning number three. Beware of extravagance. Beware of extravagance. You're in the Old Testament. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. The Bible tells you here how much money you're supposed to make. It doesn't express it in terms of adjusted gross income, factoring out taxes and depreciation. But it does tell you how much you're supposed to make in Proverbs 30. Back up to verse 7, it says, "...two things I ask of thee, do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord?" or less, I be in want and steal. Here's the balancing point. Lord, help me make enough that I'm not tempted to steal. Lord, help me to make enough, but not too much, so that my wealth would turn my heart from You. Wealth turns people's hearts from God if it's not viewed properly, that's the problem, quite frankly, if you go over to Revelation chapter 3 and you look at the condition of the Laodicean church. The problem with that church, which many people believe that we're in the Laodicean age right now, and the problem with that church is that their confidence was placed in their wealth, and wealth gives a false sense of security. It gives a false sense of security, and their confidence was no longer in God, and God viewed them as poor as a result of that. Beware of extravagance. Charles Wesley said it would be better to throw money into the sea than to be extravagant, because then the money poisons no one. Extravagance poisons people, it poisons people. Extravagance poisons the church. It poisons the church by robbing the resources that belong to God. In the book of Haggai, the main problem there was that Zerubbabel was trying to rebuild the temple. And he couldn't rebuild the temple because the people were focusing more on extravagance than they were on God's ministry. The prophet says there that your houses are paneled and it takes a certain amount of wealth to panel a house. But my house... God's house sits uncompleted. And because of your extravagance, when you offer sacrifices to me, you bring in the sheep that are lame and diseased, and you keep the good sheep for for yourself. It not only poisons the church, extravagance will poison the family as well. It poisons the family in a number of different ways. If it's not handled properly. It poisons the family through expectations. Statistics show that over 90% of the marriages that end in divorce, the couples point to finances as either a chief reason, the chief reason or one of the chief reasons that they couldn't get along with each other. Extravagance can poison a marriage. Hey, a young couple gets married, the expectations are high, aren't they, for what you ought to have. It took your parents 30, 40, 50 years to get to the point where they could drive a new car or have a, the, the color television set or the Winnebago or a ni- nice furniture or whatever it might be. And a couple gets married, they want to be there overnight. And they can be there overnight by the use of a little thin plastic item that we call a credit card. And all you got to do is charge it. And if your mailbox becomes like my mailbox currently is, I could install a wood-burning home in my house and heat it this winter with just solicitations for credit. Almost daily they come in. So they begin to buy on credit. The furniture store wants to sell you something on credit. Clothing can be purchased on credit. Automobiles can be purchased on credit. And before a person knows, they're in up to here with credit. And they say, oh boy, I got the solution to this. Let's do a loan consolidation. In other words, all these credit cards have to be paid down within a year or two. So let's just consolidate them and spread the payments out over 10 or 15 years. And pay gargantuan amount of interest out there for 10 or 15 years. But hey, the payment's small. If we can manage it now. So now they have this long-term payment. But they still have credit cards. And their attitude toward extravagance never changed on the inside. Their attitude toward consumption is still the same. And so now they not only have the long-term debt, but they have the credit card debt that they're starting to amass on top of that. One of my friends over at Grace Baptist Church is working overtime, constantly working overtime, constantly hiring new employees. You know what her job is? Bankruptcies due to credit. Individual bankruptcies due to credit. That is a mushrooming phenomena in the day in which we live. And it all revolves around an attitude towards wealth, an attitude toward consumption or extravagance. And do you think I'm naive enough to think that it's not affecting the church? I talk weekly. Not daily yet, but weekly with people that are in the church. And they're having the same struggle as people outside the church. And it all has to do with an attitude toward extravagance. It poisons the family. It will poison a couple. It will poison the children in that family. Because if children are raised in an atmosphere of extravagance, their expectations rise with the extravagance that they're given. And this is my own personal philosophy, okay? I'm going to share it with you in that light. I can't show you chapter and verse. And the jury's out on how it works. But I think we destroy children many times as future mates because of extravagance. You think about that for a second. What if I take my daughter and I buy her all kinds of stuff? She's got all the the best clothes, the best jewelry, the best shoes. You know, she's got shoes endorsed by just about every teenage rock star in America. And uh, I buy her this stuff, and she gets anything she wants, most anything she wants. Then she gets to be about 20, 25, if I have my way, 40 years old. She gets married. (laughs) And some poor chump is going to marry this monster that I've created. You know, and he's got some hack job that's an entry level job and he was so grateful to get that job making 25, 26, 30,000 a year as a new teacher, new fireman, new policeman, new accountant, whatever. And he buys her a first Christmas present. Hey, it's a neat present. But it was nothing like dad gave her. It was nothing like And so she's, she's appreciative. She was raised in a home where the social graces were taught and appreciation was learned, was learned in that environment. But I think I can poison my children with extravagance. And I've got to be careful with that. You know it requires a lot of parental self-control to do that. You know what the desire of my heart is? My desire, the desire of my heart is the old baby boomer desire, and that is, I want them to have it better than, than I had it. Isn't that wonderful? I want them to have it better than I had it. You can just hear some 60-year-old grandmother saying that right now. Hey, listen, the, the difficulty that they went through built character in their lives. You know, McDonald's wants to hire those 60 and 70 year old people because they work harder than any other group in America. And the reason they work hard is because they came out of the crucible of necessity. And they had to work hard. It is imperative for me that I control extravagance so that I can build character into my family. That I keep it under control. That I keep it bridal. Extravagance poisons individuals as well. It produces a false sense of independence. Self-made, financially independent, self-supported. It becomes a consuming, materialistic cancer. And as Ecclesiastes said, it cannot ever find any satisfaction. And the reason that it poisons individuals is because they never learn to apply the teaching of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-8, through So learn to be content. Learn to be content. Learning to be content. This is really critical, what I'm going to say to you right now. And that is, you will never learn to be content until you properly understand wealth. If you properly understand what wealth really is, you can learn to be content. Who is a wealthy person? A person with a lot of money or a person with salvation? Who is a wealthy person? A person who has a lot of money or a person who has their health? Who is a wealthy person? One with a lot of money or a person with a family that's a loving family, that's a God honoring family? Who is wealthy? The person with a lot of money or the person with friends? and fellowship, and people in their life that care. When you properly understand wealth, you will learn to be content with the circumstances that God has placed you in, the financial circumstances. Listen, I would like to live in a bigger house. I'm a yuppie. I want to live in a bigger house, okay? I want the vaulted ceilings. I want the big windows. I want the accoutrements that go with that. I wish my wife had a newer kitchen than the kitchen that she has. But there's some cool things about living in a small house. One of the things that I enjoy the most in my life is having my kids sit on my lap and hugging them, teasing them. My two-year-old gets up on my lap and he says, Daddy, bite me. And so I start biting them. And I like biting him. It's just like he's made out of little Twinkies, you know. And I'm biting him, and he's laughing, and I'm trying to bite his ears and his neck, and he's laughing, and I quit. And what do all two-year-olds say? Do it again. You can't wear out a two-year-old. Do it again. Do it again. You know, in a big house, I wouldn't see as much of him. I'm not saying I want to live in a one room house, okay? I don't love them that much. <laughs> Got to keep this thing in proportion here. But you understand the view of wealth in terms of what is important affects my view of my circumstances, doesn't it? And I'm not saying that people that live in big houses don't love their kids. They do love their kids, and I'm sure they hold their kids on their lap but because I understand what wealth is, it makes me content with the circumstances that I'm living in. You understand that? That's the key to the whole thing. And when you learn to understand that and define it properly, you'll realize that materialism is an attitude. And that poor families produce materialistic children, rich families produce materialistic children, Poor families produce kids that are content. Rich families produce kids that are content because it is a frame of mind. One of the saddest things I see are kids coming out of quote-unquote homes of full-time Christian workers. And some of you may fall into this category. And what you heard, you heard more than hearing, isn't it great to be involved in God's service? You heard over and over again, isn't it terrible that we don't have enough to live on? And some of the kids that grow up in that environment are absolutely driven toward materialism because of the negativity that they heard in that home. And those parents entered into a ministry where they knew that the financial resources would not be that great. And in the attitude that they took toward entering that ministry and the financial shortage that resulted from that decision drove their kids into materialism. It's a frame of mind. It's a frame of mind. I cannot tell you what materialism is or is not. I read an article that was written by a famous preacher. And in that article he said, Am I saying to you that if you want to be like Christ, you will not own a BMW? You got it. How can you own a BMW when the world is starving and when there are needs for advancing the kingdom of God? And then I read the response to that article. Some of the responses came from Christians who own BMW dealerships. And one lady responded, I really need to know where to stand on this issue. I just bought a new Honda Accord and I might be living in sin. You see, if I tell you what it is in terms of a dollar sign or a possession or whatever that might be, for one, I'm legalistic because I can't prove it out of Scripture. And secondly, I missed the point with the whole thing because extravagance or materialism is a way of thinking. It's a frame of mind. It doesn't have a dollar sign on it. Every person struggles before the Lord with their own attitude on this one. The last warning, and I'll end with this one really quick, although I'd like to say a lot about it. It's a good thing I spoke today because the longer I took in preparation, the more I kept adding to it. Next time they ought to just give me about 24 hours' notice. Beware of complicating God's plan for money. Beware of complicating God's plan for money. It's really pretty simple. Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11 says, Go to the ant. Hey, that's as simple as it gets, right? I mean, when I think of ants, their world revolves around three things. Other ants, dirt, and crumbs. Okay? Ants don't get up in the morning and say... Oh, I don't have a thing to wear. I wore that last week, and everybody's going to see that I've got it on. Oh, here, let me go to my roommate's closet. Gee, oh, there's something to wear right there. I'll put that on. Aunt's kids don't get up on Saturday morning, you know, and, and watch cartoons and see all the junk food and toys advertised, and they're getting on their parents. I want this, I want this, I want this. Ants live a simple life. They don't have televisions. They don't go to restaurants. They don't buy cars. You don't see an ant driving around in an old Camaro going through midlife crisis. (laughs) You don't look down in little puddles and see ants in ski boats. You don't step in the puddle and the waves go up and some little ant says, Cowabunga surfs up, dude. You don't see that. Ants don't live on that level. (laughs) Ants do two things. They work and they save. They work and they save. They work hard. They're industrious. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever your task, work heartily as serving the Lord. They work hard. You'll be known for two things in your life in relationship to your work. One is the quality of your work, and the other one is the attitude you had while you were doing it. Work hard. and save. They save. We're in the middle of the richest nation on the face of the earth, and 96 out of 100 Americans retire without savings. According to Ron Blue, who's written a lot on this subject, only 2% of Americans reach age 65 financially independent. 30% are dependent on charity. 23% must continue to work. 45% are dependent on, America, on relatives. Only 85 out of 100 Americans, or excuse me, 85 out of 100 Americans who reach age 65 have less than $250 dollars. of Americans have more money when they're 18 than they do when they're 65. We are not a saving nation. We're a consuming nation. Hey, the bad news is this. Inflation is going up. The last 20 years, inflation went up 230% in America, which means that if you make $30,000 this year to have the equivalent income 40 years from now, you're going to need to have $326,000 a year in income. The good news is you can plan ahead and save for the future. The bad news is you can only save if you refrain from buying. There's a price tag on it. Work. Save. And the other thing that's simple, and I'll wrap it up with this, is give. Give. One of the great reasons that God gives us what we have is so that we can advance His kingdom with it materially. And I don't know about you, but that's one of the great joys of my heart is to be able to give to the church. That's God's way of doing things in this age. And if I consume and if I go in debt, I am limiting my ability to give. And one of the reasons I save is to be able to give. The Bible says to help those who are in need. If you have wealth and turn from those who are in need. How can the love of God abide in you? Galatians six ten says, So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men. Those are the four warnings. Beware of religious folklore, a lot of misunderstanding out there. Beware of thinking your money belongs to you. Beware of extravagance. Beware of complicating God's plan for your money. It's really simple. Work, save, and give. And if God gives you prosperity in the days ahead, don't be involved in what Charles Spurgeon described as the child devouring the mother. Because practicing biblical principles, unless God somehow intervenes, will give you a certain amount of wealth. But don't allow that wealth to turn your heart from God. Remember what the Bible says. Hey, thanks for listening to me.